Good afternoon. This is Cedric McCoy, nurse practitioner and associate director of the Comprehensive Stroke Program at UChicago Medicine and your host for the UChicago Medicine's Community Health Focus Hour. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I encourage you to give us a call, ask your questions, or just make comments. However, I ask that you please try to limit them to 30 to 45 seconds. The number to call in is the WVON listener call-in line, 312-374-8130. Let me give you that number again, 312-374-8130. So autism spectrum disorder, also known as ASD, is a developmental disability that can cause social communication and behavioral challenges. In 2015, the thought the cost for caring for autism in America was $268 billion, not million, billion. That cost is expected to rise to nearly $460 billion by the year 2025 if we don't come up with, with more effective interventions. Autism strikes at an alarming rate. One in 54 of our children develop autism, and it is four, found four times more often in boys than girls. This disability that affects all races and socioeconomic groups alike. However, when it comes to, di- to diagnosis in the African-American community, it's not as well documented or poorly diagnosed or properly diagnosed as seen in white communities upon their first specialty visit. Why is that? Well, today we are going to dive into autism and try to find out a lot more about it and help children with autism live their best lives possible. And a lot of that relies on early disease detection and treatment. As usual, we put together an amazing panel of guests today for our show. So let me introduce them to him. I'm the only one in studio today, so this feels absolutely weird to me. So <laughs> I, I, I got to get used to this one, but I guess this is the new norm. First up, Dr. Peter Smith, MD, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, U Chicago Medicine. Dr. Smith, are you there with us? I am. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, thanks. I appreciate the introduction. I'm uh, a doctor at the University of Chicago, one of the doctors who is in the section of developmental peds, and we're the type of doctors who diagnose and treat autism. <clears throat> Not the only ones, but we're probably on the front lines. And I have the opportunity and the privilege to run uh, two different diagnostic clinics. One's housed at the Erickson Institute in the middle of the city, and one's out in Villa Park. My colleague runs one in, um, at the University of Chicago campus, and we also have sites in collaboration with several other medical centers, including Elmasonic and two advocate sites. That's fantastic. So we've tried to spread out across the city to do as best we can. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining the show. Looking forward to getting a lot of that knowledge that you're going to pass on to us. Next up is Deborah Vines, founder, executive director of The Answer, Inc., Autism Awareness and Support Agency. Deborah, are you there? Yes, good afternoon. I am here. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Deborah Vine, CEO of The Answer Incorporated Autism Awareness and Support Agency, and we are dedicated to providing support, resources, education, recreation, and advocacy, not just for families impacted by autism, but developmental differences across the board. And I am the mom of an amazing 32-year-old son, Jason. Oh, that is fantastic. I'm looking to hear your, looking forward to hearing your story as well and a lot of the resources that you guys can provide for us. And last but not least, Kimberly Johnson-Evans, President, Chicago Autism Connection. Kimberly, are you there with us? I am. How hey, are you? I'm doing fantastic. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little about yourself. So I want to first start with I am the mom of an amazing 27-year-old living with autism, and I am the president of the Board of Directors for Chicagoland Autism Connection, which is the full volunteer board. Our mission, uh, we're a 5013C organization. Our mission is to increase autism awareness and acceptance and improve the quality of life for children and adults with autism. 
All right. This is fantastic. Well, all of you, thank you so much for coming into calling in today and being a part of this show. We got a lot of really good things to dive into. So let's start with you, Dr. Smith. What actually is autism? Uh, Excellent question to start with. Autism is, in a word, not one thing. It is a collection of individuals. It's it's a um, part of human variation that describes a collection of individuals who have different features about them that often we can pick up early in life and help them overcome some of their difficulties. The three main kind of areas where children with autism have difficulty is learning how to communicate verbally um, and sometimes communicate in other ways too. Second is they often have uh, difficulties in interpersonal relationships. For little children, one of the things you often see, not always, but um, they might not make as much eye contact or play with other children their age. And then the third is they often have unusual behaviors or characteristics. All three of those can be very variable in any one individual with autism. And there, no one person who has autism has all the features. If you went to the web and looked at all the different features, no one person has them all. And each person has it in some ways uniquely. There are kind of general subcategories. And when I'm explaining this to other doctors, uh, I tell them that they should think of autism a little bit more like the word European and not like the word ear infection. By European, I mean that the subcategories underneath it in some ways are more important. So if you're from Europe, You are European, but it's more important that you're French or you're German or you're Spanish or you're Italian. And same thing with autism. To lump it all together, I think, sometimes does it a little bit of an injustice. Although at the same time, from the CDC and for this kind of conversation, a lot of them receive the same services and require the same services. So on that level, we think of it that way. So it's a multifaceted condition of children who are having difficulty learning how to communicate and how to socially interact. Okay, so over the last 20 years, as I was doing research for this show, I I came across a lot of stuff that just blew my mind. Um, And one of the things that got me is over the last 20 years, we have seen the rate of of ASD steadily grow in this country. Now, a number of years ago, and we discussed this on one of my shows towards the end of last year, but people were attributing the rise in autism diagnosis to the increased number of vaccines that were given to our children. So let's put that out there first and foremost. Is there a link there? And then basically, what do we know that really causes autism? That's an excellent place to start. I'm glad you did that. Two things about that. Number one is most of the time we don't know for most children who are described as meeting criteria for autism why they're that way. We don't yet understand it well enough. Um, There is a small percentage of children, probably in the single digits, who we do know the reason why. Um, for instance, children who have Down syndrome, who have trisomy 21, they're at higher risk of having autism than the general population. And uh, so in that case, we sort of know that genetic condition causes it. There's also a few extremely rare specific gene conditions that cause it. But again, those are extremely rare, like winning the lottery kind of odds. And so the vast majority of children, we don't know why they have it. Because of that, there's been a lot of theories of what causes it. And as you correctly point out, one group promoted the theory that vaccines were the cause of it. Fortunately, we have really good studies that have been done in Europe and in the United States by the CDC, but also in Europe and in other countries that have really organized healthcare systems. And we can definitely say that across the board, vaccines aren't the reason for the rise of it. One interesting tidbit in there is that the, one of the reasons this, I think, misunderstanding persists is because, for good reasons, and that is that parents who are good observers of the children recognize their children are doing okay for a while and all of a sudden don't do well. There's a population of children with autism where that's clearly what happens. And, we're, again, we're not exactly sure why. There's people working on theories of why. But, unfortunately, that happens around the same time they're getting some of the vaccinations. And it's so funny. Just about three months ago, I diagnosed a young 
boy with autism, and his mother had told me, she said it's so fascinating because her father, in fact, is a physician. And so she's, you know, she'd read about all this and knew that and knew that vaccines didn't cause it. And she herself works for the drug industry. And she's the last person who'd, who'd believe in, you know, that kind of thing or, or promote that kind of thing. She said, no, Dr. Smith, you know, he was due for his vaccines and he was doing fine. And then he got sick and missed his vaccines. And then we traveled and we came back and then, you know, he was getting worse. And so then I, I met them and he got the diagnosis. And she said, if he had gotten the vaccine, I'm sure I would have believed it was them because the timing was right. I know in his case it isn't because he still isn't caught up yet. Right, <laughs> so right. This was a woman who, so I, I think that's part of the reason out there there's so much belief in this because it's a timing issue. And we're not sure exactly why it is, but we can be very confident that's not the vaccine. And what age do we start to typically, does autism typically appear? Well, it's something that, that almost universally starts or is picked up in the early ages. And as you alluded to, the numbers are going up. Part of the reason the numbers are going up for sure is that we are looking closer at children than ever before because we realize there's something that we can do about it. Take a quick step backwards. The first person who described autism, Leo Kanner at Johns Hopkins in the 40s, unfortunately got a lot wrong. And we as a field are trying to fix a lot of that thinking. And over the course of my 25 years of doing this, we've changed a lot of our thinking about it. And one of those we've changed is realize that there's something you can do about it. And a lot you can do about it, turns out. And the children who are diagnosed now were getting therapies early. And by early, to answer your basic question, we make the diagnosis very frequently now in those clinics that I mentioned under age three. And the new guidelines, the AAP have come out, and the goal is to make all the diagnosis under age three. When I started, the average age of diagnosis was six to seven. So we really pushed it down, which is a good thing. Um, that's because a lot of hard work of general pediatricians who are doing screening, because of families who are noticing and because of a lot of awareness that's been done through agencies like the CDC. So the current age of diagnosis is around the age of three, although as you alluded to the beginning, one of the things that I've worked on and some people in our section have been trying to push that number down across the board in all communities because, as you alluded to, it's not been equal. And that's one of the big emphasis of what we do is try to make that diagnosis as early as possible across all populations. Okay, so Deborah, I'm going to come back to you, Deborah and Kimberly. I'm going to come back to you guys in a second too, but I just want to throw one quick question out to you guys. So, Kimberly, you said your son was 27 years old with autism, and Deborah, 30 plus. I, I can't remember exactly what the number was, but for both of you guys, what age were they diagnosed? So, this is Kimberly. I'll start again, just as the statistics show. My son was diagnosed pretty late; he was almost seven years old. Okay, by the time he was actually diagnosed, because he didn't present typical symptoms of what we thought autism was way back when there was additional testing and um you know i i knew because i could just see like the lack of eye contact the fixation on tasks not interested in interacting with peers you know he hit his milestones which was you know he learned how to walk on time he learned how to potty train on time but i knew that there was something there and unfortunately we did get a late start because he was diagnosed so late and back way back in the 90s, um, there wasn't a lot out there. And so that is, you know, true that he was diagnosed pretty late. How about you, Deborah? Jason was diagnosed at 18 months, and we thought that, you know, he was hitting the milestones that, that were presented to us because he was a preemie. He was a 24-week baby. So we thought that he was doing the things uh, developmentally slow because he was a preemie. But one day he woke up, and all of his, all of his uh, uh, functions functions were gone. 
no eye contact, no babbling, no cooing. He wouldn't even sit up. It's like his muscular functions were, were gone as well. And so this was in 1988. So the, the numbers in 1988 were one in a thousand. Wow. And my husband and I took Jason to multiple hospitals before we got the diagnosis of autism. They said, oh, a lot of diagnoses that we received, oh, he'll he'll pick things back up because he was a preemie and, you know, he had a brain bleed when he was born. So we just got multiple, multiple, multiple misdiagnoses. And when we got the diagnosis for autism, we just went into overdrive and just started doing all the things that we needed to do to help him succeed in life. So, Dr. Smith, they, they point out some really good signs there. So what are some of the signs that a parent should look for or if they see them would signal them to become concerned that their child may have autism? Sure. I, I think that I just want to highlight those two stories are, I mean, they really are the heart of the story. There are two parents who didn't take no for an answer. And I think the number one thing is if you're a parent and you're worried, the likelihood that you're right and the people who are telling you wrong is that you're right. So don't listen to them. Do what these parents smart parents did and not listen to them and and not listen to sometimes grandparents or sometimes unfortunately doctors will, will falsely reassure people and as you just heard it, you got to sometimes stick to your guns and and i think the hard part of that is that families now are more aware of the, the major things as they just mentioned so a decrease in eye contact or a hyper focus on certain unusual things or having to play things in a very specific way and not being flexible with play these are, or actually a lot of children with autism, not all, have sensory sensitivities. So they can be very sensitive to, to sounds or sometimes smell. Sometimes they have extremely picky diets. That I had one family whose child mostly ate at the time that I met him, not only mac and cheese, but a specific brand of mac and cheese. And when they didn't have that brand, the child wouldn't eat. So those kinds of extreme sensitivities are another kind of hallmark sign of it. Um, sometimes it's movements and behaviors, although not always. So spinning things or watching spinning things like the dryer or fans or spinning the self. Sometimes it's hand flapping or atypical finger movements, especially when excited. Sometimes it's a rigidity that leads to tantrums when things aren't done exactly the right way. It, each child is unique, and the stories that I hear continue to amaze me. And um, one family told it to me when I gave them the diagnosis. They were very upset, and I was slightly taken back because they were clearly very knowledgeable of the child and of autism. And they said, Doctor, you know, we thought he had autism, but we came to you hoping you'd tell us we were wrong. And I think that families are in that kind of ambiguous space where they're intelligent and they're hardworking and, they're, and they know their children, but, they, you know, they, they don't want to be the person to diagnose them. And so I really think it's important that we get them to care and to, to specialists and to other people who support them. All right. So, you know, these parents are the best example I can hear of. All right, interesting segment. Listeners, call in 773-374-8130. I know you have questions. When we come back, we're going to dive into a little bit more about Kimberly and Deborah's story, but I kind of want to pick up right where we are right there because I have a nice little question lined up there. So when we come back, we'll dive more in with all of our guests. Thank you so much. Welcome back. This is the UChicago Medicine Community Health Focus Hour, and I'm encouraging other autism support groups to call in and share information about your services. We have a bit of a limitation on how many guests we can have, but if you have services, please give us a call. Call in or reach out to us on Facebook. We are back with Dr. Peter Smith, Kimberly Johnson, and Deborah Vines talking about autism, and we're going to dive into a little bit more about their children. 
So let me ask both you ladies, as you learned more and more about about autism, you know, you saw some of the signs and symptoms that you mentioned in the last segment. And as you started learning more and more or like just even listening to what Dr. Smith just said, was there a moment that came on? You're like, wow, he has all those things, too. I didn't even add, think that was way off or that was different. Were there other symptoms that were subtle that once you learn more about autism, you're like, wow, he had a lot of those things, too. I'll start with Deborah this time. Well, well, Jason has very, he had very, very limited executive functions then. Okay. And so everything that I saw and everything that I read about, I mean, he hit it dead on. Okay. Um, And he had severe, severe behavior problems that I didn't know for a long time that went along with autism. But, you know, as we grew in the, uh, the journey, might I say, the journey of autism, I learned that you can teach anyone anything, and, and I'm going to believe that until I'm proven wrong. Mm-hmm. And with our children, it's just repetition. It's repetition, even though they have multiple signs of autism and, and many other signs of other things that might even mirror a mental dysfunction as well. But I know that they can be taught to be better, maybe not 100%, but better. How about you, Kimberly? So my situation is a little different because William, he presented a little differently. And I think you're right. I think in hindsight, when I look back, I could see some of the sensory issues and fireworks were big things for him. And he just couldn't take loud sounds and ambulances, police sirens would drive him crazy. And I just thought, you know, okay, they're loud. So that's something. But William, my son was very hard for doctors to diagnose because he had some I guess you could say savant type things that they thought, oh my God, he's you know, three years old, he's putting together puzzles and he's able to work the VCR at that time. But you know, when I look back on it, I remember when Barney was out and he used to replay a certain part over and over and over again. And I was just like, why is he doing that? Right? Yeah. But as I've, you know, we've been on this journey, I learned that, you know, these are some signs and things that I didn't know about. But what was more difficult for me is you know, taking him to all these many doctors, and I finally had him diagnosed at the University of Chicago, it was, well, you know, it looks like autism, but we don't think it is. Maybe it's Asperger's, you know, all these different things. And I just knew. So I just kept going until we figured it out. And so as he grew and he got older, then he started presenting a little more symptoms, and then that's when we officially received the diagnosis. All right. Well, Dr. Smith, it works out really well that both of these ladies have boys with autism. And one thing that we see is that why is it that autism is four to six times more common in boys than girls? Well, it's an excellent question. And so it highlights the two stories we just heard that there's a lot of variability. We just Mm -hmm. heard from two parents that smart parents who knew their children and had different journeys. And that's exactly the term that I think it's right to use. And because, you know, autism is so many different things. In terms of boys versus girls, the jury's still out on that. There are several different theories. I think historically one of the reasons was, and I think it's less the case now, was that girls were missed more. So some of it was that. But it's definitely the case that there's something genetically about being a boy, and we're not sure what that is, or, you know, the, the, the creation of boys in the womb or somewhere along the line that it's easier to get thrown off in, in this way. And... One of the things to keep in mind is that autism, as you just heard, is this very ability thing, and it's more often boys, and that, that ratio that you quoted um, set, tends to be in certain of the subpopulations, not in all subpopulations. And so for parents who are worried, if they're worried about their daughter, they should be worried. 
and especially in the ones that it's harder to diagnose, at least there's some data that supports that that the girls in that category may be underappreciated, as you just heard, you know, what happened, you know, 20 years ago. Now that may still be happening, especially I worry about it in populations that are just getting underserved. But in terms of the biology of it, we don't know. And um, there's a lot of smart people trying to figure that out. All right. Um, but I, But just being a girl isn't necessarily protective. Okay. And, you know, that's one of the things I want to dive into on the, uh, the underserved population, too, as we dive deeper into this. But let me ask you this. So Kim and Deborah come to your clinic. They say, hey, Dr. Smith, we're concerned that our child may have autism at any age. We'll say whether it was, you know, 17, 18 months or three years or six years, whatever it may be. What is it going to look like when the child, what should the parent expect for, in terms of screening for that child when they present to your clinic? Sure. So it's it, uh, slightly different in two different groups. So let me start with the one. So in children under age three, if the parents are concerned at all, they should tell their pediatrician and they should reach out to the local child family connection team. That's the state of Illinois early intervention program that serves children. It's kind of like special education, except it's for children from birth to age three. And they can get an assessment in their home and get services started. And through early intervention, they can then be referred to these, the clinics I mentioned, the medical diagnostic clinic, and the parents can request that. So can the pediatrician and so can other people like the therapist. And when they come to that clinic, each one's slightly different, but most of them look about the same. They'll come to a place that's new for the child and the family. Often it's, it's a kind of a medium-sized big room, and there'll be several people in it that, that kind of evaluate the child usually all at once or in, subs, you know, in, in series. One of the places I work at is one of those one-way mirrors, so not so many people have to be in the room. And there's usually a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, a physician like myself, social so worker, or apparently a Oh, sorry. Okay, continue. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and they will evaluate the child usually over a couple hours. We'll then come together as a team and put together a report, and either that day or the next week give that report to the family and tell them how they feel about the diagnosis. Okay. All right. So studies have shown that minorities are less likely to receive early diagnosis of autism than whites. So I was doing research. Lots of times it was, it was shown that they're often diagnosed with ADHD or conductive disorder. Both Kimberly um, and uh, Deborah, what was your, and you kind of mentioned on this a little bit earlier too, Kimberly, what was your initial experience before the diagnosis was made in your boys? Did anybody for the moment be like, oh, no, it's just you know, ADHD, stop worrying about that. Or did you feel pretty comfortable and confident, like as you walked into those facilities? I'll take Kimberly first. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there was some, William, no, when I walked into the clinic, there was nothing like, oh, okay, yeah, this is autism. Of course not. He wasn't diagnosed with ADHD. Of course, he, at that time, didn't use expressive language. So, he had some behaviors, and, you know, behaviors are a form of communication. And, of course, there was some question about, well, is it just a behavior issue, but never looking any deeper. So, yeah, and I think that to add on to that, one of the barriers in our community is a lot of people don't go out to try and get a diagnosis because there is still, unfortunately, a stigma in our community, and especially in our black and brown communities, surrounding, you know, autism and other disabilities. And Deborah, what was your experience like when you took uh, your son in for the first time? Oh my God! The first time, second time, third time, fourth time—it <laughs> <laughs> was, you know, and, and still to this day, you know, just piggybacking on what Kim just said. In underserved communities, the services are still very, very limited. Number one, number two, the stigma is still there. It's still there, very, very much more than we would want it to be. Kim and I, being advocates and parents that we are. But I felt alone and very isolated. I felt that, that I was just being spoon-fed 
things just to go along to get along because we just don't have a lot of parents that are stepping up at that time, especially, and bringing their children forward and getting the help that they need. You know, it, even back in the day when I was when I was growing up, it's a lot of families that um, just kept their children at home. They didn't take them to school. They didn't take them to the doctor. They knew that there was something going on with them, and so they just didn't put forth an effort because of all the stigma to make them better. And so even now, that stigma is still very prevalent to a very big extent as it relates to moving forward with autism in, in um, underserved communities. So what kind of support was available for you then? You felt like you were on this island, you know, I and that, that had I to be did. so difficult. I actually had to go to, um, and, and I say this in my story all the time, that my husband and I had to take a, a train, plane, bus to more affluent communities like Plainfield and Aurora to be able to get just even start with a support group meeting. And then we ended up finding some things for Jason, and we moved from the city to Proviso Township and, and come to find out that, you know, he was getting a little bit more services, but not the services that he needed because right now they have so many more therapies and things available for children in the underserved community more so than now. But as I look back, there was nothing available in our community for Jason. And how about you, Kim? Oh, definitely not. I can remember taking many trips to Naperville, Evanston, Hoffman mm-hmm. State, and they just said that we're just trying to get educated and really understand because this is truly a journey. It's of understanding, you know, there was nothing available back then. And right now we're facing there's so much. Now we're trying to help our families navigate all of the services and supports that are available. But back then there was really nothing available for families. And I was lucky enough that, you know, as after the diagnosis with the University of Chicago, he shared with me that there was a support group that was starting up. And that happened to be at the time Chicago South Side a group, which is now Chicagoland Autism Group. And I was so happy to, you know, receive this support from a group of ladies who also grew tired of going out, you know, trying to find different information and resources. And um, they decided to start their own group. And what they did was bring those subject matter experts into our community for free to our Mm -hmm. parents and families so that they could receive the information and get educated about what autism actually was. And that's when Chicagoland Autism Connection took off back in 1997. So, Dr. Smith, pretty sure there's a straightforward answer to this one. But so we can't mainstream the way we deal with autism. So it it can't be like one size fits all. So can you tell us about the variations in the children that present with autism? Sure. I think that you just exactly said it right, that there's no one size fits all. I think that three different kinds of things in general will apply for most, almost all families, especially if they diagnosed early. One would be that the child should be transferred at the end of early intervention, because I mentioned early intervention at birth to three. At the end of early intervention, they should, families and the EI team should make sure the child transitions to a specialized preschool classroom with people who are formally trained in how to educate children with autism. And that's one of the keys. And then from then on, the child should be in educational systems and have an IEP that supports them for their specific needs. Because as you heard, different children are going to have different kinds of needs. But the IEP is the contract between the school district and the family about what they're going to do for that specific child. And it's often a long document and should go into exquisite detail about the child's strengths. And so that's the first step, uh, transition to a preschool with an IEP. Second thing is, as was mentioned, there's many different therapies now that can help children with autism. The oldest one, the best-known one, is called ABA, uh, started by Dr. Lovas at UCLA. 
But there's also um, DIR, which used to be called Floor Time, that was started by Dr. Greenspan on the East Coast. And that's available also here in Illinois, and there's several others. And those therapies are often intense, many hours a week outside of school. And they, as you heard, repetition and kind of, of strict structure can really help children. And then the third thing is there are other types of therapies, as was mentioned, um, speech therapy especially, that can help the family and the school develop systems for instance, visual schedules and um, sometimes augmentative communication strategies like the picture exchange for communication systems or sometimes electronic ones now. And those three kind of avenues are almost always involved in, in most kids, but to different degrees and in different amounts. Fantastic. And Kim and Deborah, right, last question before we go to break. How are your children doing today? Uh, Jason is doing amazing. He is really doing um he is far exceeding what the doctors said because um, when, he, when he was first diagnosed, I failed to mention this, that the doctor said, oh, he probably won't talk. Or he probably won't be able to communicate with you the way you feel comfortable, and he's going to have behavior problems. He told me about all the negatives, and, and I left that doctor's office just feeling totally defeated for a couple of days. And, and we, what we as parents do, we put that superwoman cape on and we keep it moving so that we have to <laughs> uh-huh. get the help mm-hmm. we need for our families. But, but Jason is doing fantastic. Like I said earlier, he went through a lot of behavior problems, self-mutilation, uh, uh, bumping his head, and, and just a lot of different things. But with love and care, he's overcome a lot of that. And medication, but he's been on the same dose of medication for like the last 15 years. I, well, I have him involved in a lot of things. That My agency has a program actually that's going on right now with Zoom. It's Music and Me and Spectrum University. And while we do a lot of things with CAC, we have recreational programs. He goes to a Special Olympics. He's in a day program. So he has a, definitely a, a better social life than me. <laughs> <laughs> that is He's fantastic. Doing really well, though, and, and praises be to God. And, and I have to give him all yeah. the glory because it's truly been a challenge. But one thing that I, that I truly want to expound upon the listening audience is that don't never give up. You know, I was sharing Amen. a story with Kim earlier that Jason did something that was just so profound and, and just practically made me cry because, I didn't think that he would be able to follow a one, two, three step like he did. And he did everything the way I taught him and only showed him a couple of times. So a lot of times parents just give up when their kids get to be a certain age. And a lot of times it's because we're tired. But he's doing fantastic. It's because I'm not giving up. That's fantastic. And lastly, Kim, how's your kid doing? Uh, William is doing great. Actually, William is a college graduate from Lincoln College down in Lincoln, Illinois. It was something that he really wanted to accomplish. I'm so proud of him. If you had asked me 20-something plus years ago, would I have ever seen that? No, (laughs) I wouldn't have seen it. But I saw it with my own eyes. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work, not just with me, with my son. He's very determined. I had a lot of great support along the way. If you reach out and you can know that you're seeking support and help, people will help you. You just got to be steadfast and not take no for an answer. William, he received his driver's license about three years ago. So, you know, he's really begging for a car, and I'm really praying <laughs> over that. <laughs> All right. I love it. When we come back, when we come back from break, we're going to go uh, going to discuss the impact autism can have on one family. We'll be back in a second.
Welcome back to the U Chicago Medicine Community Health Focus Hour. I'm here with Dr. Peter Smith, Deborah Vines, and Kimberly Johnson, and I do this every single time. I get the feeling we're going to have to do two of these shows because we are running out of time and there is still so much to cover. We know that the world isn't always kind when faced with something they don't see every day. I read this quote that it's okay to feel different, but it's not okay to treat or be treated difficulty, difficultly. So how are you guys empowering your children to know and understand the difference and teach self-love and embrace their autism? You know, because Jason's executive functions are limited, Mm -hmm. he really doesn't know when people are laughing at him. So he starts laughing with them. And for a very long time, you know, it it really upset me when people would stare and they would look when he would be doing things with his hands and things like that because autism has been called the invisible disorder. So when you first look at our children, you can't tell that there's something, you know, going on with them until they start stemming or something like that. So in answer to your question, Jason didn't know, but I did. And it, and it made me feel really, really bad. And so now I use it as a teaching moment. And it's with children, with adults. And I, I say, why are you staring at my son? Do you want to know why he's doing what he's doing? And, and once I started explaining about autism with him, with them, and, and just going through the whole journey sometimes of, of what, I go through and what he goes through and, and what it's all about, they are very, very open because people are ignorant to what they don't understand. So I teach them. Right on. I love it. Kimberly, you back with us yet? I am here. Okay. Hey, no worries. One, what The question basically was is, what are you doing out there to empower or when you're, I guess when they were younger, maybe even more so now to empowering your children to know and understand the differences of like the way that they're being treated by society and to teach them self love and to help them embrace autism. Because lots of times, like uh, Deborah was saying, like people are ignorant about this. They don't see it all the time. And you know, they, they laugh, they stare, they make comments. So how are you dealing with that? So William and I have always had conversations. I did have to share with him the definition for autism and what it means, what it meant. But William has experienced, you know, a certain amount of bullying and different things on this journey. And so we did have to have that discussion. But what am I doing to empower him? It's a journey for both of us because, you know, when he was younger, I was kind of the mama bear. He's a young adult now. So in order to support him and empower him, I have to allow him the dignity of rest and to make choices and to be as independent as he possibly can. It's hard for both of us because, you know, you're a mom, you want to protect your kids and different things like that. But, you know, William's situation, he is in the community. He's working. He's a full-time job. You know, he's a busser and he's, He's meeting people all the time. So he has experienced the good and the bad, right? Mm-hmm. And so I often, you know, just make it clear that we have space for conversation for things that happen with him so that, you know, we can discuss it and we can come up with a solution. And sometimes he has his own solutions. But empowering him to know who he is and to advocate for himself is my current journey. All right. And Dr. Smith. So what are some of the comorbid or coexisting medical conditions that can accompany autism? Uh, well, the, the comments that you just heard about the children being invisible, I couldn't emphasize enough. I think that's exactly right. Uh, for some families, I tell them that this is harder than some of the children I serve who have obvious difficulties, who like, for instance, need wheelchairs or things like that. So children with autism in general are usually healthy. So most children with autism are not sick in other ways. Um, As I mentioned, there are some circumstances where children with autism come and do have comorbid things. As was mentioned, 
it's a little more common in children who are born prematurely, and they often have uh, medical conditions that go along with prematurity, including sometimes breathing difficulties. In the past, and both parents mentioned this, that doctors were way too pessimistic, including maybe sometimes myself, and I apologize to those parents that I was, but a lot of parents have trained me and taught me over time that I tell most families now, they're going to do it, and I'm going to do it with them, and they're going to you know, get him through, and, and I tell them if they have a college fund, don't stop contributing to it. Because as you just heard, that's not taken off the table. I tell them that, you know, we're going to get through this, and it may be a journey that this child goes on differently than other children, but it doesn't mean they're not getting there. And there are increased risks for seizures for some of the children who are significantly impacted, especially if they have uh, those genetic conditions that I mentioned to you. Fortunately, however, it's rare. As the numbers have gone up, as you alluded to, the, as it were, sickness of the individual with autism has gone way down. And most of that children with autism become adults who, as you just heard, can have a job and and to live a fulfilling life. And that's what most parents should expect. And it's especially the case if they take the bull by the horn and get the child in for screening and treatment early. Deborah, so as we start to get ready to wrap this up again, I ran so much out of time. Deborah, what are some of the services that are available for people at the Autism Awareness and Support Agency? Well, right now with social distancing going on, we are still doing our programs. We actually have one going on in queue right now. I'm going back and forth in my front room with my son, but we have our Spectrum University tutoring program. We have a Music and Me program, and we have a Spectrum Social program as well, and we have counseling services for the families, and they can call us at 708-296-5651. And we also have a virtual walkathon coming up on May 15th, and you can go to our website at theanswerinc.org, and our number again is 708-296-5651. How about you, Kimberly? So Chicago, of course, COVID-19 has limited some of our resources, but we're taking everything online. So if you check our website, it's www.chicagoautism.org. And we are still conducting our monthly meetings as well as some in-between so that we can support our families through this pandemic. CAC is uh, known for support, awareness. We are intentional about building community and connecting our families together. The most important thing on this journey is to build a network and to have people that you have on this journey that are on the same journey with you so that you can have support. Isolation is detrimental to this journey. So that's what our organization is about. We are a resource resource hub. We bring in subject matter experts to our families for free to support them and to educate them. So that's what we do at CAC. All right, Deborah, and I was asked, can you give that phone number one more time? 708-296-5651. Thank you so much. And let me give you guys a last little second for closing remarks. Uh, Dr. Smith, I'll put you up first. I'm going to give you a chance to give this closing remark, but I want to ask you one last quick question. Is We talked about treating, and we also heard Deborah talk about medications. What is the treatment and the medication for these patients? The vast majority don't take medications. As alluded to, um, in her case, uh, children with behavioral uh, behavioral problems sometimes use behavioral modifying medicines, and that's what I do when I'm treating children long-term. That's one of the reasons they come to me. Okay. Um, first for the diagnosis and later for that. The treatments are mostly behavioral, the ABA or the DIR floor time. Uh, just for the last closing statement, the one thing I would point out, we are in this pandemic, both autism and the Autism Society of America have a lot of resources right now specifically about COVID-19. So if families are cooped up indoors and are having difficulties, and many of my patients are, I encourage them to go there. What was the Call first? Could you give the first one again, sir? Sure. They're Autism Speaks. 
is one of the main websites in Autism Society of America. All right. Thank you so much. And Kimberly, closing remarks. If you had to tell people out there, other mothers out there listening, what's one thing you want to leave them with? Well, that's, I think I said it in, uh, a few minutes ago, but the one thing I want to leave them with is that you need to find uh, partners and other moms or other friends. And, you know, it's great to have those supports, but, you know, just connecting with other people on this journey is really something that is essential to just, you know, have a success on this journey. Because when you have a child with any disability, it can be very isolated and it can be very lonely. And you just want to make sure that you have someone to talk to. And that's what we're trying to do at Chicagoland Autism Connection. And last but not least, Deborah. Well, the main thing is you don't have to suffer in silence because it, it can be a suffering, but you don't have to do it in silence. And there are so many vehicles that are out here opposed to when Kim and I, children were smaller. You don't have to suffer in mm-hmm. silence. There's a lot of vehicles, and both Kim and I are, are very good at connecting families to a vehicle that they need. So you don't have to suffer in silence, and you, you heard it from two experts, parental experts. And Absolutely. The, the most important experts. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank our executive producer, Susan Peters, Titus Williams, our man behind the glass, our technical producer. Uh, also like to thank Latiera for streaming me on Facebook Live. My amazing guests that came on and told their stories today. And most importantly, you, our listeners. Next week, host Ed McDonald should more African-Americans participate in clinical trials and biomedical research. All of us research program. Thank you so much and stay safe out there and practice social distancing. Take care, everybody.